Well, brethren, God uh, is unreal, as most of you know, to most people in this world. And to a certain degree, God is unreal to some extent, even to some of us in the living church of God. And I know that by the fruits. He, he, the people aren't really excited in the way they act and the way they live, live. God is not real to an awful lot of people. I was reading the section this morning in the uh, uh, local paper that has the news of religion. And uh, I must forget the name of this section, but it's in the uh, this morning's paper. And uh, boy, I hope I didn't forget the last part of it. But anyway, it says five experts on what to fear from faith. And they give a rundown of things that they fear from people who have religion. And, of course, that is uh, uh, kind of uh, interesting and, and kind of uh, sad in a way. One leading religious man, I don't want to read their names and put people down in public, but they are very well-known people. I'll just say this. This one leading religious uh, leader says, There's a sense that in order for me to be right, everyone else who disagrees with me is wrong. It makes religious interfaith cooperation more difficult. If I believe that, I have to believe that other people's religions are worth less invalid. You have to understand, notice this man, a very famous, highly intelligent man who's written some very helpful, very popular religious books. He continues, you have to understand that religion is not about getting information about God Religion is about community. The primary purpose is not to get us to heaven, but to put us in touch with other people. Wow. <laughs> the primary purpose. Of course, we're not trying to get to heaven. We understand that part, that error. But he says, this great religious leader, that the primary purpose of religion is to get us in touch with other people. And all the other comments were equally empty. No one seemed to have the answer, yet they're very famous individuals. They just don't know. God is unreal to them. Obviously, we're not trying to get to heaven, per se, but we are trying to get into the kingdom of God to fulfill the purpose for which God gives us life and breath. And Jesus said the first and great commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That is the primary purpose of religion. So you can know God, worship God, serve your Creator, obey your Creator, walk with God, and walk with Christ now and forever. The second commandment is like to it. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. But the primary purpose of religion is not just to help you to, to know people or to get along with people in that sense. And that's what this man was saying. So it shows a woeful lack of understanding of God. God is invisible to most people, even these great religious leaders. They don't know God. They know about God. But as the Apostle John, Jesus' special friend, was inspired, as you know back in 1 John 2, 4, He that saith, I know him, and who keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. That's what John wrote. You say, I know God, but don't keep his commandments. You are a liar. That's what John wrote. God inspired that in the Bible. as a liar. So these people don't know God. They don't keep God's commandments. They don't at all. Not one of them that I wrote believes in that. They're all Sunday keepers. Or one of them, a rabbi, was a Sabbath keeper. But they even believe that Jesus was the Christ. They do not know God. And so they don't really understand. But we, brethren, need to understand. And we in God's church need more faith 
faith in the real God, faith in the invisible God. We need more dedication. We need more healings. And we need more power of God and the work of God that God has called us to do. And so we have decided, as most of you know, or many of you have heard, to call a fast for the living church of God. And that fast will be held four weeks from today. And I'm preaching this sermon. This sermon will be sent out. So greetings to all of you brethren around the world. And this sermon will be sent out so everyone will hear it except here uh, on that day of fasting. And by the way, I'm giving this sermon four weeks, you brethren out there, four weeks ahead of time so I can drink tea, all right? (laughs) I'm allowed to drink tea because this is not a day of fasting today, but it will be four weeks from today. I thought I should mention that so that people don't think I'm breaking the day of fasting. (laughs) But we're talking about this fast and some of the reasons behind it. So we do need to fast and we do need to draw close to God. Turneth with me, if you will, to get the understanding more about why we need to fast and what it's all about back to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, chapter 6 and beginning in verse 3. I'd like to read the whole thing, but it just says Jesus went to his own country and when the Sabbath came while he was talking and the brethren there said in verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? See, who's he? He's just a carpenter the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us. Yes, Mary was not the Virgin Mary. Mary had at least seven children. She had Jesus supernaturally and six other children in a normal way by her normal husband. Four sons and then sisters, plural. She might have also had four daughters. We don't know how many sisters there were, but more than one. And so the brethren there, the people in the community, were offended at him because he talked with authority, and they didn't understand that. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could. Here is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, Emmanuel, God with us. He could do no mighty work there. Even Jesus Christ could do no mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few, not very many, a few sick folk, and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. If you turn back to Matthew 13 and verse uh, 53, I think it is, pretty scribbled here in my margin, but the end of the chapter, you'll see that it says, because of their unbelief. So he could do no mighty works because of their unbelief, not his unbelief, but their unbelief. Even Jesus Christ could not do very much in an atmosphere of faith. Now, we ministers need more faith. No question about that. But brethren, please understand, we're all in this together. I think you know that. All of us. We have to create an atmosphere of faith. All of us. A whole atmosphere of faith. A church that is filled with radiant faith. That believes in God. Believes in God's promises. And so on. And obviously, at the end of the age... Jesus said in Luke 18, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And he asked it kind of rhetorically, as though there wouldn't be much faith. And it certainly isn't much faith. And I've explained that a number of times recently in sermons on faith and sermons on healing. So I won't go back over that again. In chapter 9, turn to Mark now where we are here. In chapter 9, and Jesus here near the end of the chapter had been talking about or been dealing with this demon-possessed child 
and his disciples could not cast this demon out of this young man. And finally Jesus did. And in verse 27, he took him up and lifted him up and arose. And when he came come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? Verse 29, Mark 9, verse 29, Jesus said to them, This kind can come forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. Not just prayer, but prayer and fasting. That's what Jesus said. And obviously he was fasting a great deal himself if you read the story of his life. Turn now back to chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, and notice this instruction here from the Son of God. Mark 2 and beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? He was right there with them, of course. God in the flesh. He was not invisible. They could see Him. Deal with Him. God was talking to them directly in the person of Jesus Christ. So why didn't they fast? Jesus said, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. See, Christ's followers will fast if we're true followers of Christ. We will fast in those days. Now, we don't see Christ in person. Now we don't see God the Father in person. He's invisible. We see God by His creation. But modern science, under the influence of Satan the devil, has so muddied the waters, they have actually undermined tremendously, no doubt with Satan's influence in their minds. They don't mean it, but God has, Satan has guided them to come up as one of the major teachers of the entire teachings of the entire educational system of the Western world is based on evolution or as the British call it, more properly, evolution. <laughs> I know Mr. Munera used to like to say it that way. That's the way they pronounce it over in England. Evolution, which is what it is. And so they believe in a creation without a creator. They believe in all this wonderful design of everything without a designer, and so on. And it's really tricky how God, uh, Satan has blinded their eyes to one of the main proofs of God when you understand the tremendous things that God has put how science tells how difficult it would be to recreate the human eye, you know, when they just talk about the eye, and the human brain, nothing remotely is like that. The human brain is so much more powerful than any computer and capable of doing such more than that. But if you said, well, could, uh, could this huge computer uh, out here on the, on the desert island, on the, on the sandbar, somehow put itself together and get itself all wound up? Well, if they weren't thinking about evolution in the back of their minds, they'd say, oh, no, that could never happen. But then somehow they think the human mind did that, and the human mind created that, that great complicated computer. But their mind jumps the track, and they don't understand. Another proof of the invisible God that we use an awful lot, as you know, which we should, since they've undermined evolution, or underlying creation so much, undermined it, is prophecy. For God has said specifically, time after time after time, this city is going down like ancient Tyre, and this city right up the uh, right up the coast is not going to go down. It will become a minor city, but it will be there when Christ comes. He said, this great empire is going down, but still exists at the end. That's Egypt. But this other empire is going clear down. That's Babylon. 
and so on. So anyway, there time after time you'll find statements like that in the Bible made hundreds or thousands of years ago that have come to pass absolutely or they are still coming to pass as far as that's concerned. And people can't really knock that in the head. They just evade it. They don't try to talk about it and they, they don't believe it, of course. So God is very real, but we don't see God. And so God seems unreal to us even though we know those things unless we're focusing our minds upon them. And so God is able to, or allow, he's allowed Satan, of course, to blind us to that. If people want to get blinded, they do. Turn back to Daniel. What can we do about all this? This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting, Jesus said. And you turn back to Daniel chapter 9 here, brethren. Daniel chapter 9, and beginning in verse 3, uh, this is after, of course, he describes how Daniel found that they were going to be in captivity another 70 years. And then I set my face toward the eternal God to make my request by prayer and supplications with fasting. Notice, Daniel was fasting, sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the eternal my God and made my confession and said, O eternal, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments, we have sinned. And he begins to ask God to please have mercy upon them, cause His face to shine upon them, forgive their sin. They're turning away from God. They're not heeding His servants, His prophets, His ministers, and ask God's mercy. And verse 17, Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and His supplications. Supplications mean continual prayer and humbling oneself and crying out. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. He says in verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people who are called by your name. Brethren, as we approach the end of this age, we can begin to do that sincerely. We can say, Father in heaven, it's been a long time. The drought's getting worse. The famine's getting worse. The disease epidemics are getting worse. All these other things are getting worse. Help us to finish your work. Help us to get inspired. And please send Jesus soon. Shake the nations. Help them to wake up. And shake your own people, Father, that they can wake up and get real and quit drifting along in their, their Laodicean attitudes. We need to pray that way. Oh, Lord, hear. Don't delay. Now, while I was speaking praying and confessing my sin. Daniel didn't say, I'm all righteous. He was human. He was not only a very great servant of God and very faithful, but he made mistakes. And so he confessed his sin, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the eternal my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, this great archangel, you know, the three key cherubs, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer, Look, Gabriel seems to be the one that's sent as a personal messenger. Michael's the one that fights the battles for Israel. Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. So God had mercy and God gave him understanding. Over in chapter 10, Daniel 10, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message came to Daniel, and so on. In those days, verse 2, I, Daniel, was mourning. And when you read it carefully, brethren, 
you sense he probably was fasting again. He was mourning for three full weeks. I don't mean he was fasting for the three weeks. He was probably fasting and praying. And as Mr. Armstrong used to go out to Palm Springs and he would rent one of these homes for a month and he would take a break every now and then and eat some meals, but then he'd fast two or three days and then back and forth to get spiritually as well as physically rejuvenated. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And then he shows how this angel came to him. Come And then again, in verse 10, Then suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and the palms of my hands. And this great spirit being said to him, O Daniel, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak and stand upright, for I have been sent to you. While I was trembling or speaking uh, this word, or excuse me, he was speaking, I stood trembling. Then notice verse 12. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself. And whenever God in the Bible talks about humbling oneself, it nearly always includes fasting, if it's a, if it's a real crying out to God type of humbling, and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. His words to who? Well, obviously he was praying. So he was probably doing a certain amount of fasting during that three-week period, and he was doing a whole lot of praying. Begging God, help us, O God, intervene. Please intervene soon. Your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. And then he describes this demon blocking off the righteous angel, and I've given you that a few weeks ago. But Daniel was praying, probably fasting, crying out to God intensely for three full weeks, seeking God. So brethren, as a church of God... The church of God is the end of the age. We need to be doing that probably more than most of us have been doing. I don't think there's any question about that. We really need to do this. And you're going to say, oh, that's hard and that isn't going to be fun. Well, frankly, every time I just want to say this, and I've been far, far from perfect, but in 57 or going on 58 years in the church of God, every time I have sacrificed for God, whether it was giving up dating and movies and having fun all summer long, not one date, not one movie, not one nice thing in that way during the entire summer of 1951 or during the entire summer of 1952, when all my friends back in Missouri were having fun, I know what they were doing, and sometimes you go back and see them later, and they had dates, and they were out at the country club swimming and playing tennis and all this kind of thing, and I was out there doing what? Driving and driving and driving and driving all over. Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, up through Missouri and Illinois and heading back out toward the coast. Not one movie, very few hot meals, and no dates, no nothing. How sad. But I came back fulfilled, and I look back on that as two of the happiest summers of my entire life. I had a sense of fulfillment a sense of deep spiritual exhilaration that I cannot fully describe to you. And they were turning points in my life. Other times, when I have set myself to serve in an unusual way, or when I have set myself to seek God, I've seen how God intervenes. One time a young man in the college was dying. I was a faculty member by this time. His name was Roy Priest. I may have told you this story before, but he 
had a terrible case of diabetes, sugar diabetes, and his parents didn't tell us that. He just came to college. He'd always wanted to come to college for years, his life's dream. He finally got to come. But near the end of his first year, he died, along about in March at least or whatever. And I felt terrible about that. We had had very few people ever die in the church of God. And I set myself to fast, and I fasted. I really did, brethren, four days in a row, asking God to heal Roy Priest, raise him up, whatever. God didn't do that. But you say, well, God forgot it. Well, no, I can't describe it. But just one thing after the other began to come to me later. God was saying, it's okay. I'm blessing you for seeking me. And I was blessed. Years later maybe five or seven years later, at Big Sandy at the Feast of Tabernacles, after I preached, and I think I gave the example of Roy Priest, a, I started to say young woman. She was not young. She was perhaps 35 or whatever. A woman came up to me very thoughtfully, and she said, Mr. Meredith, I'm Roy Priest's sister. And she said, I appreciated your sermon and what you said about Roy and your concern for him. I didn't know she was in the church or even had a sister. But she said he'd wanted all his life to come to... It was just like going to the New Jerusalem. And she said he wrote that he was so happy, but we had already given him up for dead two or three times of the sugar diabetes. And we were glad that he had six or seven months of his dream fulfilled, even though he died, to be at Ambassador College because his body had a lot wrong with it. And she described some things I can't tell you all. And we didn't tell it. I understand she admitted they didn't put that on his application. We didn't know he had those things. And then he got the urge and we found in his room after he had died a whole big box full of candy bar wrappers. And apparently he got on a, you know, just like an addict. He couldn't help himself and ate 20 or 30 candy bars in a row and he died. But she said it was still good. He had his dream fulfilled. God blesses us if we sacrifice. Don't think He doesn't. He does. He will bless us if we seek Him and go all out. When we don't do that, our lives can be in kind of a low valley and we're sort of in the church and we're around and things, God doesn't strike us dead. But we don't grow a whole lot. But if we start fasting and praying and seeking God and going way above and beyond and serving others and things like that, we have a momentary sense of sacrifice. There are certain things we have to miss, miss a few movies or a few meals or a few whatever it is. But later on, God begins to bless and bless and bless because God is real and He will bless us if we truly keep His commandments, not perfectly, but to the best we can with Christ in us and seek Him in prayer and study and fasting. And in meditation, of course, meditating on what we read in the Bible. So anyway, God blessed Daniel and he said, Your prayers were heard. Your words were heard and I have come because of your words. God began to hear right away. The answer did not come for three weeks. But God heard right away when Daniel began to humble himself and to seek God in prayer and fasting. Turn with me, if you would, back to Deuteronomy. This, perhaps, is one of the greatest examples in the Bible of fasting, Deuteronomy chapter 9. And it's a type of the greatest example of all, of course, which is Jesus Christ's example in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights just before He began His ministry. Did, 
ate nothing. I don't think most of us could do that. I'm not suggesting anyone does that, and I'm asking any of you who do start to fast very much, you'd better see a doctor and be sure you're okay. Be sure your body's not going to give out or something. Now, don't let some relative tell you. The first time I fasted, I was back home in Missouri and wasn't even in the church, and I'd read Bernard McFadden's. He was a way old-time, maybe Mr. Gustin will remember him, a physical culturist, Bernard McFadden, that he wrote on physical culture and exercise and certain kinds of bathing and and, and fasting and stuff way, way back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And I was reading stuff like that. I always wanted to be big and strong. It didn't happen. <laughs> but and anyway, I was more healthy. I'm still 77. It's still working. It's just not big, but I'm still here, okay? So it's working partly. Anyway, uh, I read about fasting. So I was fasting one day at home, and my mother, of course, didn't understand. She wasn't in the church. She said, oh, Roderick, you'll die. You, you can't do that. As she said, it's summertime, and, and you'll just die. People that don't eat, you know, you better at least drink some water. I said, no, mother, you don't die. People have fasted many days. Well, you at least got to have water. Well, of course, I didn't do it. I was stubborn, and she thought I was going to die. She was scared to death. But I did fast, and I didn't die. And many other times I fasted for three or four days and once for a whole week, and I didn't die. But at any rate, Jesus did fast for 40 days and 40 nights. I'm sure he was much healthier back then, and I'm sure Moses was as well, because they didn't eat the degenerate foods that we eat today. Here's Moses, a type of Christ. He was the lawgiver for ancient Israel, and Jesus Christ was the lawgiver for the New Testament church. And, of course, Christ used Moses. Deuteronomy 9, he says in verse 8, trying to break into the thought here, also in Horeb, you provoked the eternal to wrath so that the eternal was angry enough with you to have destroyed you, he's telling Israel. And notice what Moses did, though. When you get in trouble, what do you do? You pray and you fast. And so when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, which the Eternal made with you, then I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. So it describes it. It spells it out. A spiritual fast is normally you eat nothing, you drink nothing. He did that for 40 days. Then he was given the Ten Commandments, and at the end of the 40 days, he was given the tablets of stone, and then he came down, and then he found these people drinking and dancing, and this orgy, as you know, and he broke the commandments. He was very upset, and he looked, and there you had sinned, he says, verse 16, against the eternal your God, and had made for yourselves a molded calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the eternal had commanded you. Then I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands and broke them before your eyes. Now, God didn't punish Moses for that. I'm sure God must have indicated to him in some way he should do that. I don't think Moses was presumptuous. And then Moses says, verse 18, I fell down before the eternal as at the first. Forty days and forty nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water. Why? Because of all your sin which you committed and doing wickedly in the sight of the eternal to provoke him to anger. You see, when you're afraid before God, when you need God's mercy, when you need God's intervention, what do you do? You pray and fast and fast and pray. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the eternal was angry with you to destroy you. Moses didn't do it just for himself. He was like their human father. He watched over them. 
He was their guardian under God. He had this deep personal concern like a man would try to give his life for his son. And he was fasting for them. But the Eternal listened to me at that time also. And the Eternal was very angry with Aaron. Of course, he had gone along with their idol, remember, and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. So Moses did what, brethren? He fasted with nothing for 40 days and 40 nights. Then he came down. It doesn't say how many days or weeks. Maybe it was two or three weeks. I don't know. It certainly wasn't months. You don't get that feeling. But for several days or a few weeks, he was back down. Then he goes right back up that mountain again. And that's a hot, dry mountain. I climbed it back in 1972. Very barren up there. And he went up there and fasted again for 40 days and 40 nights. Wow. He was crying out to the God of heaven and he got his intervention. He obtained his intervention by fasting and prayer, praying fervently, begging God, crying out to God and saying, Father, have mercy. And he was eating nothing to show God his absolute commitment, his absolute dedication to the cause in that sense. Back in the book of Esther, just before the book of Job, we see another example. And most of you know the story of Esther, how this wicked Mordecai was going to destroy, uh, not, not wicked uh, Mordecai, but wicked uh, Haman. Mordecai was uh, Esther's uncle. And this Haman, who was an Amalekite, and God told them to destroy Amalek way back then. And, uh, and they didn't do that back at the time of Moses. And they didn't do that again at the time of Saul. And you need to understand that. Why would God tell people to wipe out a whole type of ethnic group. Maybe it will save thousands and thousands of lives. Men being butchered and tortured and men and women being raped and humiliated and all this kind of thing that's gone on for generation after generation from those people. God has a reason for what He says. The world doesn't understand that. But anyway, they were in trouble and the and this Haman got the king to give his signature to destroy all the Jews. So in chapter 4, Esther 4, verse 13, Mordecai told them to answer Esther. She had become his niece. She had become the wife of the king, a Jewish woman. Do not think that your heart will, uh, in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews, her uncle Mordecai told her. For at, if you remain completely silent at this time... Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. See, Mordecai sensed that. God was not going to destroy the Jews or allow them to be destroyed. God will take care of it. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And sometimes God brings us through a particular situation, a trial and a test for such a time as this. It may be really bad. It may seem awful at times. And yet later you realize, God allowed me to go through this trial through this trial or this test to teach me lessons I needed to do this or that later on. And that's what he was doing here. Then Esther told them to return this answer to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast. Oh, here we are, a fast. Now, brethren, Mr. Armstrong sometimes said, and I need to explain this because some of you will say, well, Mr. Armstrong said, he said, you never fast as a weapon to make God do your will. That's true. And I certainly agree with that wholeheartedly. 
And I've been in not two or three, but probably at least a dozen or more meetings with Mr. Armstrong discussing fasting and discussing this type of thing. Mr. Armstrong was certainly not against this example. He just meant you can't just get your own idea and make God to do something just by fasting. But by seeing that this probably was within God's will, he may not have said it's going to happen, but within God's will and using fasting as a tool to humble yourself, to show God your absolute dedication and to help yourself be even more humble and cry out to God, yes, that type of fasting for something is all right. It is all right. And we should do that. And that's what this Bible example shows us right here. So he, she said, Go gather the Jews and fast for me, neither eat nor drink. That's what fasting is all about. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night and day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. See, it was against the law, the, the strange, arrogant laws of some of those Middle Eastern kingdoms, even for a man's wife or for the king's wife to just come in without getting his permission. It's a kind of an arrogance there, but that was the law, and he could have stuck to it. Some of those kings are so arrogant if their wives were getting older, and, and uh, she came in, and he'd say, okay, off with her head, and he'd go and get himself another model, if you follow me. They could do that, and probably some of them did. But she was taking her life in her hands. I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. My life is in my hands, but I'm going to fast for God's people. Then Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. She was his niece, but she was also the queen. So he followed her instruction and got all the Jews to fast. And as Paul Harvey used to say, you know the rest of the story how God intervened and delivered the Jewish people in a tremendous way, a very unusual way, and saved them. No doubt partly because of the fasting and fervent prayers of Queen Esther and Mordecai and all the rest of the Jews who fasted and prayed and cried out to God at that time. Mahatma Gandhi is often used as an example of a great spiritual man. He was not a great spiritual man. He was a very interesting political leader and he fasted continually. As you, some of you know, if you've seen pictures of him, he looked like a rail. His fasting was an act of rebellion. He just fasted. He didn't know the God of the Bible and he worshipped, I suppose, in a sort of a general way, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, the gods of the Hindus. But frankly, he wasn't even heavy into that from all I've read about him and I've read some about him. He had his own religious political ideas and he thought by humbling himself before the rest of his people, he made sure everyone knew about it. Now, when I fast and when you fast, we shouldn't try to tell everybody. I'll, I'll sometimes tell my wife so she doesn't fix a big meal the next day and it wasted. And sometimes I'll tell uh, Monica so she's not pouring me this pitcher of water, doesn't wonder what's wrong with me, that I'm going to fast and I won't be eating this day. But we just quietly tell two or three that need to know, but except for that, no one else needs to know. We fast before God. Mahatma Gandhi made everyone know he was fasting as an act of rebellion against the British crown to stir up the people and to get them to rebel and get their freedom from India. So he's looked upon as a national hero, and he had a lot of guts. You know, I, I got him that. He had a lot of guts. He had a lot of perseverance, but he was fasting for purely political reasons. He was not fasting as a Christian at all and didn't profess to do so. So let's understand there's a difference in how you fast and the attitude you fast. So we, in the right way, in the Christian way, 
seeking God, humbling ourselves before God, saying, Father in heaven, I'm fasting before you to show you that I realize I'm nothing. I'm just a piece of dust. I'm getting weaker and weaker. But I deeply desire this. I cry out for this. Please help me. Please help your church. Please help your work have an impact on this sick world. Please begin to intervene powerfully and send Jesus back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And please help us prepare the way so that men may know that you're a real God and that you have true servants on this earth and they will begin to listen. We could pray and fast that way and we should again and again. So we must seek God's will as we fast. Not our own will, but God's will. The general will we know He wants with specific things that we may choose to fast about. Turn back to Acts, the ninth chapter, brethren. Acts chapter 9 here, if you would, and beginning in verse 1. Here's the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion. Then Saul, as he was called then, he'd held the cloaks of those who were stoning Stephen to death in the previous chapters. Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked letters to Damascus, if he found any who were of the way. Christianity is not just empty belief in Jesus. It's a way of life. The way. Whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone round him from heaven. So he is walking along, and suddenly this blinding light comes right down on this road and in his face. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, and of course this was the Lord Jesus Christ now, resurrected at God's right hand. No man has ever heard the voice of God that is the voice of God the Father. But Christ was the Lord of the Old Testament. Christ is the one who talked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Talked with Abraham and so on. Christ was here speaking. The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were some sort of sharp things they direct the oxen with. And he's saying, God wants you to do something and pushing you and you're not doing it. And so Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What's the thought here? What do you want? How can I fulfill God's will? You see the thought? That's what Paul was asking. How can I fulfill God's will? What do you want me to do? And the Eternal said, or the Lord said, Arise and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with them stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. They, they, they heard this strange voice coming out of the sky. Then Saul arose from the ground, so he obviously fell, fell flat on his face on the ground, and he saw no one. But when they led him by the hand and brought him into Jerusalem, or to Damascus, so he was temporarily blinded, could see absolutely nothing from that blinding light, and God blinded him on purpose to help him realize how weak he was and how much he needed God. And here's this great man who was a great leader among the young Jews, yelling at them, Get these Christians! Get these, these God-rejectors! Beat them! Take them away! Throw them in jail! And he no doubt caused hundreds of them to be beaten and taken into jail, thrown into the back of wagons and herded off, and the women were crying, the little children screaming, and the men were sorrowing as they went in there. Some of them were killed. We know that, but the whole story of the book of Acts. This man is struck down. The greatest persecutor of the Christians was turned around 100%. 
and went the opposite way, just as hard as he'd been going before the wrong way. What a remarkable change. What a remarkable change. But no doubt he cried out, what do you want me to do? And so when his eyes were open, he saw no one. He was blind. But they brought him to the hand to Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. What did he do? What do you want me to do? What did he do when he asked God? What do you want me to do? He started fasting. That's what he did. For three solid days, he ate nothing. He ate nothing. He drank nothing. For three solid days, the Apostle Paul, who turned into be one of the greatest men in the entire New Testament apart from Jesus Christ. Wonderful example. What do you want me to do? When you want God to tell you what to do, when you want God to deliver you out of a terrible trial, when you see the spiritual malaise of God's church, the lukewarm condition that's so supposed to permeate the whole church of God at the time of the end, because this is the Laodicean era, and that's the main spirit in operation today. Lukewarm. Not some evil thing, just go and break the law or something, but just kind of a blandness and just to take it easy, don't get excited. When that starts to descend upon you, what should you do? You should do what Paul did. You begin to fast and pray and seek God. You should do what Esther did. You should do what Moses did. Fast and pray and seek God. And do what Daniel did. And then God will hear your prayers. So we need to do that and understand that. So we must seek God's will and fast to have that fulfilled. Now, we don't automatically always know God's will, though, brethren. I think you all know that. Lots of people assume they know God's will. These five supposed spiritual leaders that it talks about in the newspaper this morning, they're supposed to be great spiritual leaders. They don't know God any more than Mickey Mouse at all. I'm not trying to put them down, but they just don't. You read it, you'll see that. They know nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry, but they don't. They don't get it. God will not use them to finish His work. They are not keeping God's commandments. They don't understand our national identity. They're not going to warn Israel. They're not going to turn people back to the God of the Bible because they don't know that God. God is way off. But God is beginning to be way off to many of you. And now we're being tried a while because we've had peace in the church overall. We've had some little little breakaways, little disruptions here and there, but then God fills up the place of those who've left and things go along and we're not getting some great persecution and some great thing is not happening. We're having a certain amount of good growth and we're glad for that. We're grateful for some healings that do come along. We're grateful for the fact that our donor list is up 79%. That's the biggest number ever, I think, as far as an increase. We're grateful. But we're not shaking the world yet. I know that. This church and all the other churches of God together on this earth are not a, 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 a not one drop in a, in a bucket compared to the world, to the 6.5 billion human beings on this earth. They don't know that we exist. Most of you realize that. Read a little bit, travel a bit, if you doubt it. They don't know that we exist, all of us together. How are we going to get the work done? By prayer, fervent study, constant meditation, and fasting. Father, we need your help. You are God. And if you want this work to go out with power, we beseech you. We can cry out to God that way. 
Give us the understanding. Show us how to do it better. Give us the power that we need. Grant us the accompanying signs that you gave, the apostles, so we can heal the sick, discern spirits, cast out demons. Even if we're surrounded by a faithless generation, let us do it more than we are now. Let us do it for your name's sake so that people will know that you're a God and they can't quit arguing and reasoning around forever. Sometime they've got to wake up. Sometime they've got to understand. Cry out to God. And if we do that as a church, I guarantee you we're going to get an answer, brethren. We're going to get an answer. And God will begin to give His power beyond what we've ever had before. But we can't imagine that we know His will always. So how do we learn His will? Well, most of you know, but let's just review this very deep and profound section I often read. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. That sounds pretty cannibalistic, doesn't it? God says you're going to have to learn to devour the Bible. You're going to have to internalize it. You're going to have to mesticize it. You're going to have to digest it. You're going to have to make it part of you in a profound way. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Do you have an immortal soul? No. But you, through that living within you, have eternal life. And you will die unless we live up to Christ's coming. He says, and I will raise you up. Oh, you will die. God doesn't promise all of us to live to Christ's coming. I will raise you up at the last day. That is a promise. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, notice, abides in me. Do you abide in Christ? Do you, in a sense, have your hand in Christ's hand all day long? I don't. I don't. I try to, but I don't to the degree I would like to. And there are certain times in my life when I've had it a lot more than others, and I look back on those times as the high points in my life, when because of circumstances, I've been forced to try to rely on God all through the day. Again, never perfectly. There was a 21-year-old man, and Jimmy Porter and Ashby Grantham and Ducky McPherson and uh, Hal Richards and all the guys back in Joplin having fun. What was I doing? Driving around the United States with Raymond McNair, and a second-hand car, the air conditioning didn't always work. We didn't get very many hot meals. We didn't have time or we didn't have money. So we fed each other prunes and raisins and got by. And once in a while, we'd have time for lunch or some lady would catch us and try to give us lunch after we baptized her in the morning. If we had time, we'd eat. But sometimes that was bad news because then we would fight so hard to stay asleep, to stay awake, because we'd lost so much sleep <laughs> that it almost killed us a few times because we weren't used to eating and it was so hot and we, was, we were actually better off. Uh, we lost a lot of weight, but we were better off eating very little during the day. And then at night we'd pull in and stay at, we'd stay at Cozy Court. There were no big uh, Holiday Inn uh, uh, Grand Center or whatever they called them and they didn't have any Hyatts. We'd pull into Muskogee, Oklahoma, or Russellville, Arkansas, or Tyler, Texas even, and there would be the cozy court or some little tiny place, and then one of us would have time to pray in the bathroom and the other in the, in the regular room, take turns, and we had to chase away the cockroaches because the little old motels weren't very fancy back then. Was I sorry? I said, no. 
I look back at a time because every time we'd have to pray in the morning, we'd approach this house and we would pray sometimes even together in the car, guide us, lead us, then we'd talk to the people, then we'd take them to a place to baptize them, and then right afterward we would lay hands on them. Sometimes they'd go back to their uh, little house and they would have a bare floor, sometimes dirt, most of the time linoleum floor, and we'd kneel down, sometimes fans, but not too good, no air conditioning, and as we prayed and laid hands on them for the Holy Spirit, we'd get up and there's a whole pool of sweat on the linoleum floor where we'd been praying for them. And we were all covered with sweat. That's all right. We'd get up and rush off to the next place and have our next appointment at 2 o'clock and the next appointment at the U.S. Post Office at El Dorado, Arkansas or wherever it was at 4.30 or 5 that afternoon. And then we'd get through meeting them, talking to them, praying for them, baptizing them. And then we drive 50 or 100 miles down the road to get close to our next appointment at 8.30 at the U.S. Post Office in Memphis or wherever it was. And we would then have the one hot meal of the day if we had money. Sometimes we didn't. And we would find Ma's Cafe or something. It wasn't very nice. <laughs> and we did sin in this way. I'm kidding. But we would often have a beer. We didn't have several beers, but boy, the beer tasted good back then. I'll tell you, it was hot. And we'd have a beer with our meal, and it would kind of relax us, and then we could sleep. But we were so tired, our bed, our, our head would hit the pillow, and the impact of our head hitting the pillow knocked us out for the night. <laughs> we slept sound. We had no trouble sleeping. We were so tired, and we'd keep a big pillow in the back of the car, so I would drive, and Raymond would sleep, and then he would drive, and I would sleep. Or the next year was Burke and different ones. A couple of years later, I took out Herman Hay on a tour as well. That was just half a summer. But anyway, I'll never forget those days because by circumstance, we were forced, if you see what I mean, to be praying, studying, thinking. We never knew whether we were going to be met by a nice woman or by her angry husband with a shotgun. And several times we were met by her angry husband with a shotgun. And I've described some of that before. We had to have God's help and God's protection. And we knew that. But you're not always like that. It's not always like that. Then I'd go back to Ambassador College and we had the dances and the spoke ambassador clubs and parties. And you kind of get in a friendly routine and you can let down. And I let down certain times. Everyone lets down if you get a chance. You've got to stir yourself up. Stir up the Spirit. God tells us, remember, and that's something we've got to learn to do always. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Christ must live in you. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Christ came in the flesh as Jesus of Nazareth. But this is the written word. He was the Word in person, and here is the written Word, this book. And if you feed on Christ, you drink into this book, you feed on it, you study it, you go back over it, you pray about it, you fast, you ask God for understanding, you ask God to give you strength to do it, love to do it, faith to do it, you feed on Christ. And pretty soon you learn to think like God, you learn to think like Christ, and you do it more and more. Verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. No, oh, if I'd stayed back there with uh, Jack Montaldo and Jack Fernoy and Ashby and Ducky and all the guys, I would have had fun, but I wouldn't have those memories and I wouldn't have the hundreds of people that I baptized and I wouldn't have the spiritual reward and the tremendous feeling of satisfaction 
that I have now, 50-some years later, looking back and being grateful that God kind of put me into a situation where I more or less had to, I had to be close to God to do His work at that time. So let's be thankful for the trials we do have when we're brought down and we have to cry out to God. It is the Spirit who gives life. The words that I speak to you, it's like the law of gravity. They are spirit and they are life. These words are living, moving principles, just as real as the law of gravity. And we've got to really understand that, come to believe that, live by that. Back in Matthew 22, Matthew, brethren, and the 22nd chapter, a very interesting thing I was studying just the other day and I just wanted to give this to you, a little sideline. I've never emphasized this before. Here's a new truth. Our enemies can persecute me for bringing up new truth. <laughs> okay, here is one. Kind of interesting, this little extra, little bit of understanding. Jesus was talking here to the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection and he says in Matthew 22, verse 30, For in the resurrection they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, he's talking to the Sadducees who didn't believe it, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Just the way that's worded. Think about that. It never hit me just told the other day. He says, Have you not read? read what was spoken to you by God. Have you ever had God speak to you? What is in the Bible was spoken to them. God was not living. These people, I mean, were not living at the time of Moses. These people were reading it in the Torah. They were reading it in the first five books of the Bible. What was spoken to you by God. So I thought that is interesting. That's Jesus validating the Bible once again, just the way it's worded. He's indicating the whole Old Testament was spoken by God. And so we need to feed on this Word. Have Christ live within us by studying this Word, masticating it, chewing it, so to speak, carefully, and making it part of ourselves. Let's go on now to... Uh, well, but first let me just say we need to saturate our mind and heart with the Word and I've explained that. I hope we can do that a lot more. Just fasting and saying, God, give me what I want. And you're not sure what you want is God's will. But if you feed on this Word, if you drink in of it, if you just simply saturate your mind with the Bible, then you know what God wants. It's not your imagination. He gives you the direct example or the direct promise or the direct principle of what He does and how He thinks. And if you ask according to that, if you ask anything according to God's will, He gives you as he tells you back in 1 John 5 and verse 14. And so you want to do that. And we've got to do that. But we also need to study the written word sermons that the church of God puts out. We are the living church of God, brethren. And the church is the mother of us all. And the church can teach us. You need to compare what we teach with the Bible. We tell you that. Don't just believe us. Believe the Bible. But many people are not trained students and they don't know how to just compare one Scripture with another and get the, all the Scriptures on one subject because they're not all listed under the same word in Strong's Concordance. They're listed under different words. And they're put together, though, if they're put together properly 
and in a right spirit, with God's spirit guiding, they reveal what? The mind of God. And so you do need an awful lot of our brethren ask questions. I wonder about this. And here some of us ministers look at each other occasionally and we say, well, we have the lead article on that in the last Tomorrow's World magazine or the last Living Church News or some fine article by Dr. Winnale or Mr. Ames or somewhere else in the last Living Church News magazine about spiritual principles and they're asking about it. Why? Because they didn't read it in the first place. So, brethren, and you brethren around the world, please understand that. These articles are not perfect. We don't claim they are. But they have very few errors. If I find an error in it, I'll try to change it. If Mr. Ames or Dr. Manale or anyone else, Mr. Bomer, finds an error in one of our articles, they bring it to me. And we back down. If we're wrong and we change it, we try to do the very best we can. Very few doctrinal errors ever get into our magazines. Maybe one out of a thousand of something we write or something. It could be a tiny error once in a while, but very seldom. We work on that, and we're God's servants. We keep His commandments. And so what you need to do is also to study the written sermons that you find in Tomorrow's World magazine, that you find in the Living Church News magazine when it comes out, and what you find in our fine booklets. We've got about 26 or 7 booklets on every conceivable topic, all kinds of information and, 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 and you know, material from outside sources, you know, resource material, proofs from encyclopedias and books on that topic. And we put them in there. You can study them. You can check them. You can look them up. You need to read the booklets. You need to get the correspondence course and read it, study it, the Bible study course. You know, excuse me, I always call it the correspondence course. Every now and then I'll get on a roll and I'll talk about still being in Pasadena or I'll, I'll talk about... Uh, how do I do? Your mind goes back. I'll call the man. Well, you're the district superintendent. No, he's a, he's a regional uh, director. No, uh, he's the area coordinator. No, he's a regional pastor, we call him now. We've had all those names and others for the key men in the field, so it's hard to remember where we are. But at any rate, we've had all those titles. But we now call it the Bible study course, that excellent study course that Mr. John Owen wrote. That was one of the highlights of a wonderful ministry that he had. Study that course. Don't just read it, study it. And go over and read it again. And the other material we send out, study it. Then you'll have fewer questions, and that will help you understand these details more thoroughly. Men in the church do not read these and so they often have questions or doubts or concerns, as they say, about something that was thoroughly explained, sometimes within the very last few months before they ask. So we all need to study primarily the Bible, but certainly those other things. And we, through these articles, can help you, especially in giving the topical explanation. You can read right through the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and you can do, of course, a topical study, too, by getting Bible helps and and uh, concordances, but they don't always understand it correctly. But with the help of God's ministry and the training many of us have had for years or decades under Mr. Armstrong, we are able to put it together in a way that's simpler for you to see and look up. Check up on it even then. But you'll find a tremendous help if you just really study those booklets, study the correspondence course, study those articles. All right, turn now, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 5. Then when you pray and fast you will know, of course, to ask according to God's will. And you will much more readily know what God's will really is. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5, brethren. I'm going to read 
more of this than I normally would, but it may be helpful. Paul is writing to the Jewish people back near Jerusalem, the early Christians. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So that's what high priests were to do. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also beset by weaknesses. Every high priest, of course, was a normal man with normal human weaknesses. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. So the priest himself had to offer for himself. And no man takes this honor to himself. And brethren, Mr. Armstrong mentioned that again and again and again. I wish Mr. Harding were here. He's off preaching in Anderson, I think it is. But he heard him. And I think you probably heard him say that, Mr. Ames. No, no man is supposed to appoint himself a minister. No man should appoint himself to some big office. But we've had some recently call themselves a prophet or an apostle or something. And it has to be kind of like a Mickey Mouse show. Frankly, it's kind of silly. But at any rate, they do that. They have no authority to do that. No man takes this honor to himself. It's command from God. But he who is called of God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, for it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today have I begotten you. As he says in another place, You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So here is Christ being spoken to by the Father. Who? Christ. In the days of His flesh, when Jesus was on earth, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death and was heard because of His godly fear. Now, brethren, some people might think that is a sign of weakness. My father grew up in Oklahoma. I think he was born when it was still Indian Territories, I remember. And he learned to ride bareback on... Indian ponies, he called them, and he came up to Joplin when he was 11 or 12 years old. But he lived first in Oklahoma. He learned a lot of stuff from the Indians down there, and uh, he learned how to snap the head off of snakes. And he would grab a great big long black snake or rattlesnake and take like that and just snap its head right off. And he did that in front of my mother on their honeymoon, and he scared her to death. <laughs> and he tried to teach me to do that. He was starting to do that one day, and, and my mother said, Oh, don't do that. Ron will kill himself. And she, she stopped him, and he never did teach me that. I wish it, you know, whatever. But she gave in to her, he gave in to his wife on that occasion. So I never learned to snap the head off of snakes. But he did a lot of, a lot of macho things, and he was a wonderful father, set a good example for me as a carnal man could. But he didn't have he he did have the Indian uh, and the early um, uh, uh, frontier type attitude. Step up or lip, you know. Don't cry. Don't show weaknesses. And he told me not to cry. And I didn't cry very much as I grew up. I learned to be tough, you know, and that type of thing. So sometimes I thought it was a weakness for a man to cry. Later I get to cry once in a while. In my old age, I get sentimental, and I've learned about the last thirty or forty years it's not a sin to cry. But Certainly David was a great man after God's own heart, and he cried. He just bawled, if you read the story of David's life. He had tremendous emotion. Wasn't a sissy, but when he was overcome with emotion, he would cry. Here is the Son of God, and he was bawling. He was bawling. His big shoulders were just shaking. He cried out with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him. Please help me, Father. 
I can't overcome this. I'm down in the flesh and you're up there. Please help me. He cried out to him who was able to save him from death. I don't think he was putting on a show. I think he realized technically, theoretically, so to speak, he could have failed. There was no one else to do that. He had to succeed or you and I would not have a Savior. So he cried out and he certainly was setting us an example. Don't be afraid to put your heart in your prayers. Don't do it in a way to show off to others. I remember one fellow we had in college, he'd get in the prayer room and he'd start yelling and I think it was mainly just showing off to others. The fruit showed that later. You're not trying to do it to show off to others. But don't be afraid to cry out to God. God is your Father. God knows your inner thoughts, your hurts, your anguish. The long, dark nights of trials and tests and suffering you go through, whether it's mentally, physically, emotionally. He understands. Jesus understands. Cry out to them with all your heart. He was heard because of his godly fear, the godly awe. He was afraid of God like a monster, but he knew how great God was. That great spirit being sitting between the cherubim, surrounded by the four living creatures and literally, you know, the 24 elders and hundreds of thousands of, of angels all around. The magnificent splendor and a voice that would just shake the universe and shake mountains out of their place if he wanted to turn it up to full volume. That kind of God. Jesus had done that. He knew who God was. He had all. He'd given all that up and came down here and he cried out. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Not just those who had a sentimental belief in Jesus, but who obey the real Jesus Christ of the Bible and do what he said. Yes, we've got to learn to put our hearts in our prayers, fervent prayers, to fast and pray and meditate on the Word as we study and cry out to God. Let's turn now to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, brethren. Ephesians chapter 4. Here we find a very basic scripture, but I want to read most of this here. Verse 1, I therefore the prisoner, Paul had a ball and chain soldered between his ankles there, had to walk around clank, clank, clank as a Roman prisoner, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you're called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Forgive each other. Get over it. Put up with one another. Have mercy on one another. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're not to have unity outside of God's Spirit. Some are going off and attacking this work or doing other things. We can't have unity with them until they repent. But we can have unity with those who have God's Spirit. There is one body. And frankly, brethren, I don't fully understand why God has allowed the body to be fractured into so many different groups today. I partly understand that as a time to try and test us. And each one of you has to file yourself where the work is being done the most and figure that out. But in another way, that seems sad. That's one reason I feel if we cry out to God and pray that God will intervene and begin to shake the nations... He'll shake his own people and an awful lot of people if, and this is the big if, because we're far from perfect, far from perfect, but if we continue and if we grow in grace and in knowledge as a church even closer to God, we may find that hundreds and probably even thousands of separated brethren 
will begin to come with us toward the end. As they see these things happening, they'll figure out where Christ is really working and they'll come because it's not God's perfect will, obviously. It's not ideal. We're all split up. So he says, we'll be having unity. There is one body, not a whole bunch of different bodies, and one spirit, one attitude, just as you were called and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. He's to be living in us through His Spirit. Verse 11, And He Himself, Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So Christ gives these offices for the church, for the equipping of the saints, to strengthen the saints, the servants of God, for the work, or to do the work, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith. We're to have that same basic approach to God. We're not to be automatons. You know, Mr. Ames may wear different clothes than I do and, and uh, my sister Catherine may wear a different style of clothes for my wife and uh, we may have different types of cars and like different kinds of music as long as it's not wild and crazy stuff. But we have different ways of our own human personalities. But in the way we approach God, we're going to be more and more the same. And God wants us to be that way till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I love that expression. I hope you'll read it often. Probably many of you love it. To the, let me read it again. To a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To reflect Jesus Christ, the way we treat our wife, the way we treat our husband. To reflect Christ, the way we treat and raise our children. To reflect Christ, the way we treat our neighbors. To reflect Christ, the way we treat our co-workers in the office or the plant or wherever we work. To reflect Christ in the way we try to obey the law or the spirit of the law at least in the world respect the flag, to respect, to honor Christ in everything we think and say and do, to honor Christ in the kind of music we listen to and the kind of material we read and everything like that, to reflect Jesus Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. We've seen that happen to people even in recent years. People come on and they try to say we're preaching a different gospel simply because we talk about Jesus Christ, which is frankly asinine. Most of you know that. But people who are weak, they must be very weak. They can't seem to figure out A, B, C, one, two, three. So don't let yourself be tossed around. Thousands of our brethren were tossed around like this 10 or 15 years ago and worldwide when they changed everything. And thank God some of us were able to see that early on. And come out and start a place where we can start the work of God all over again. But they were tossed about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness. See, their people are very clever the way they do it. The cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. Uh, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things unto Him who is the head, Christ. So again, we're to try to reflect Jesus Christ. Christ is the central part of the gospel. Christ is what is it all about. 
And God tells us that in His Word. We must never be ashamed of that. We don't just worship some sentimental Jesus, though. We worship the true Christ of the Bible, who revealed the Father, from whom the whole body joined and fit to, or knit together by what every joint supplies, each one helping out, each one of you praying for the work, each one of you doing your part for the work, every way you can, wanting us to finish the work, helping us doing the work, finish the work, crying out that we can get the job done powerfully by the strength each joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Yes, we're to do our best. We're to give our life to God. We're to walk and to live by faith. Faith in the invisible God. We've got to do that. But a tremendous tool for doing that, of course, is to study, to really study the Bible, to meditate, to pray fervently, to cry out to God. And the most key tool of all in one way, the one I'm talking about today primarily, is fasting. For if we fast before God, we humble ourselves, we feel our physical strength ebbing away. It's hard to focus on the world at that point. It's easier to focus on God if we set ourselves to do that. And so, brethren, let us use all these tools and let us use the tool of fasting regularly. Not once or twice a year, but regularly. Let's walk by faith through Christ in us with study, prayer, and fasting now and forever. Let's walk with God to the rest of our lives. I shouldn't say forever. We won't need to fast when we're made spirit, okay? So let's do it now that we can be in God's kingdom and bear His name and be His full son and His family forever.